All right, so in 1979, a TV show launched that was decades ahead of its time. Okay, for 20 years, this show aired in, in relatively the peaceful waters of TV ratings with no one really being aware of this new genre that was created or how big it would become. Okay, that show was This Old House. Okay, anybody heard of the show? A few of you guys probably still see it. It runs on PBS. No one quite realized the potential of this TV genre until maybe like the mid-2000s when then this started to happen. Lots and lots of home renovation shows, okay, and many more that you can't even fit on this slide. And now you've got dozens of shows in this space, okay, and some of my favorites, some of your favorites are probably up there. This one over here, Extreme Home Makeover. You guys remember that from when you were a kid probably, and Ty Pennington. Great stuff. Okay, these home renovation shows have become big business. They show you how easy it is to do DIY renovations and to make big money flipping houses, right? What, what could go wrong? Um, but I bring up these shows not just because I think they're um, a lot of fun to remember back from years ago, these renovation shows, but also because they're, they tap into something that's really quite fascinating. Okay, so they take these homes that are in disrepair or they're woefully outdated um, and even sometimes dangerous, and then they transform it. Okay, they take it all and they transform it neatly in a nice 30-minute package, nice 30-minute episode. And, and I think it's relevant for us today because it's mirroring something else that's happening. I think what these shows are mirroring is the type of work that God is doing in this world. Okay, so home renovation shows are showing us just a hint of the work that God is doing in this world. And as we're going to see a little bit in a lot more detail today, that God is recreating and redeeming this world. He's taking what's in disrepair and what's weak, and he's turning it into something new. And so there's, there's, there's so much that we have to talk about today. I, I kind of wish that this was a, like a several-part sermon, but you guys would get bored of that long before I would. Um, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to pick up just the highlights. But again, I'm going to skip over some things. So if you find something interesting that you want to chat more about, we'd love to do that. Um, but we've got about 35 verses to cover today. So um, we're going to jump right in. And we're in 1 Corinthians 15. Okay, we've been in 1 Corinthians for like six months now. We're the final two sermons this week and the next week, and then we'll be done. 1 Corinthians 15 beginning in verse 35. How is God recreating this world? Let's dig in there. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Okay, Paul makes it easy for us here, right off the bat, by giving us two questions that he's going to be answering. Two questions. That makes it easy. How are the dead raised? Question one. And then with what kind of body do they come? And so, first off, these aren't curiosity or questions that are asked with like genuine interest. These are questions that were asked by Paul's opponents who are challenging Paul. They're saying, how are the dead raised? Or what kind of body do they come, Paul? Kind of taunting him with these questions. And so Paul, Paul responds. And so first, we're going to answer them in order. How, are, how could a human be raised? And so we'll keep reading here first in verse 36. Paul replies, you foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. And to each kind of seed, its own body. Because if Paul parts off, you foolish person, he's not really shy about using insults here. 
But he's not trying to be mean. Rather, he's looking back at this, this thing in the Old Testament, like in Psalm 14 and in Psalm 53, where it says, A fool says in his heart there is no God. Okay, so a fool in, in the biblical sense is someone who denies the reality or the possibility of God working. Okay, so the fool will ask with incredulity, how can a dead person be raised to life? And without God, that's exactly the right question. How could the dead come to life? And so Paul begins to point to creation to give us an answer. He says, I'm not going to give you an argument for your mind, but rather one for your eyes to see. So first, he begins with plants. So just like plants go through this transformation where the seed buried in the dirt to rise into this beautiful flower, that's exactly what a resurrection of a human would look like. So the future of a seed is remarkable. It goes through this transformation. And there's a couple of themes you're going to start to see as we walk through today in almost every verse. And the first one is that the resurrected body or the future body is so much better than the current body. Okay, and the seed gives us an image of that too, where there's a seed transformed into something beautiful and so much better than before. Okay, and a second theme you're going to see, second thing, is that there is a strong continuity between the present body and the resurrected one. Okay, and again, the analogy of the plant and the seed make this very clear, that the plant is transformed from the seed. It's not a different thing, but rather it's transformed from. There's a continuity between the old and the new. And then see how remarkable this transformation is. So it says God gives it a body just like he planned or just as God has chosen. So, so God is at work somehow here in the physical world. And here's another thing that's going to become clear as we start going here, that God has plans and activities for this dirt and skin of life. So yeah, a, a fool says this is impossible. And unless you believe that God is involved in the physical makeup in this world, then yeah, what we're discussing here is silliness. Humans rising from the dead is silliness. But Paul continues, he says, don't just look at the plants, but let's look at the animals, at the world, at the heavens. And so let's keep reading. Verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans and another for animals, another for birds and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So what this is beginning to point us to is not just that God has interest in the human body, but his care and the glory that he has instilled in all of creation. Because it's impossible to ignore just the diversity of the glory that God bestows okay, between birds and creatures and fish surrounding us. And then for a moment, you just cast your gaze up and see the tremendous theatrical display that God has put in the heavens. Okay, they're not all the same. Each shines in different ways and different measures, but they are established by the joy and pleasure of our God. And this section demonstrates not only the, the pattern of transformation in nature, but also how that pattern, but how central a role that this pattern plays in God's plan. And so if you're asking maybe if, if, if how this transformation is possible, look around you and see how God is doing these types of things across the world. And if you're wondering for a minute if this means if your cat or dog or some other pet will have a resurrected body in heaven, 
It's a great question for another day. Right? So the, the glory of God's creation, animals, and heavenly human bodies speaks to God's capabilities, his creativity, his competency, right? The infinite resourcefulness of a sovereign God. And nature's just full of these transformations. Seed to plant, sunrise and set. And, and who sets about these transformations? It's God who's brought about bodies and forms from seeds in the plant world, from live birth with humans and animals, and then from the very sound of his voice with the stars and the planets. So do we think that a resurrected body is beyond the power or creativity or joy of God? Yeah, God's the one who can make this happen. And so to go back to that first question that Paul asked, how are the dead raised? Well, easy. God does it. God does it. The transformation of human bodies is a a central part of God's plan. But it's not just limited to humans, right? So let's not forget the other five days of creation, what God called good. Okay? He called the plants, the animals, the trees, the birds, earth, wind, waves. Those are all a part of his transformation plan. And and so this is just a reminder of the full full work of God's redemption in this world. Okay, so where do you think we, as resurrected believers in physical bodies, where do you think we're going to spend eternity? Okay, not on clouds. No, God's redemption plan is to transform earth, to bring heaven to earth. Christianity is not like an escape mission away from earth. It's quite the opposite. Okay, the eternal home of believers is here on a recreated, redeemed earth, physical world, physical bodies of humans. And these first few verses tell us that God engages with creation and he is capable of any sort of transformation. Okay, so that was the first question we had to answer. Now on question number two. With what kind of body will we be raised? What does this transformation really even look like? All right, and Paul gives us that answer as we begin reading in verse 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. All right, we get some fun compare and contrast here. And you get four kind of couplets to describe this transformation. You have perishable to imperishable, dishonor to glory, weakness to power, physical or natural to spiritual. And there's two ways you could read this kind of list. And the first would be like to focus on the, the first word in each of these pairs. So perishable and dishonor and weakness and natural. And then allow that to shape a a negative perception of the human body. Or, or a different, and I think maybe a better way to read this list, is to think about the trajectory or the direction of where we are headed. You can think of these bodies as moving in the direction of glory. And, and, and we need to take a minute to think about how these descriptive pairs here can shape our perspective on our bodies. There's compelling voices that surround you, And that come from inside you that will tell you so many lies about your body. And they are seductive lies. So some of you will hear these, some of you who have heard these lies, they will whisper that you ought to be ashamed of your body. 
And if, you, if you've bought into that lie, then as soon as you read this description of our current bodies as perishable and weak and natural, then you, you take that to the logical end and assume that my body is worthless. I wish it were strong, but it's weak. I wish it were invincible, but it's perishable. It will never be fast enough, healthy enough, thin enough. My stomach will never be flat enough. My skin will never be clear enough. My back will never be pain-free. My hair will never return. And I'll let you fill in the rest of that list. It's easy for us to find reasons to be ashamed of a body or to even hate our bodies. But I want us to stop there. And to remind us that God cares about our bodies. That he created humans as, as embodied creatures. And he didn't do this to you, but he did it for you. That God gave you a body, and no, it isn't perfect. But it's good, and it's essential. So much so that, that Jesus took on a frail and flawed human body, just like you, to live among us. That shows you how God views our bodies and what it means to be human. And that God has crafted a plan from the beginning to restore and redeem that body of yours. And that the gospel is possible, is capable of freeing you from shame, both in your soul and your spirit, as well as shame in your body. And so, write about one thing here. That our bodies are, are, are frail. And they should stir up a, a longing for something more. Okay, so if, you, if you're tapping into something here, you know that this body like, isn't what it's supposed to be. And so let's just take that yearning and that longing, maybe that shame or that disdain that you have for your body, and turn it into some sort of embedded hope for redemption that God is working. Think of these pairs, these couples, as, as trajectory of the direction that God has in plan for your body. And note how you, Paul uses to describe this new body. He says it was, it was sown in this, and it was raised in this. It was sown in X, raised in Y. That there's this continuity, again, between both the old body and the new body. That this isn't a different body. It's not a different thing, but rather it's a transformed one. Your salvation isn't an escape from this body, but rather it's a redemption of who you are, redemption of your body. Which, which says something significant about what it means to be human. Right? To be human is to be both body and soul. And I've used the phrase a couple of times saying like an embodied human or a physical human. That's really kind of redundant. Because to be human is to have a body. And that, that shouldn't really surprise us. Right? Like each year, like there's research that comes out talking about how interconnected like the material and immaterial parts of us are. Right? How, how diet or sleep or physical activity, how that can shape your emotional or mental health. Or, or maybe how, how like mental stress and anxiety can have like damaging physical effects on you. Okay, so to say that spirit and bodies of humans are they're, they're interconnected, like that's not a controversial statement, right? You can't separate the biological from the physio, uh, from the psychological. Like God created us both body and spirit, and He's redeeming both of those, and that's just what we're getting an image of here in this text. The next couple of verses give us a little more insight, a little more clarity into this type of body he's making for us. All right, so let's keep reading in verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we ought also to bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, so now we see this. Adam and Jesus are compared again. All right, last, text we, or last week in that text, we saw how Adam was the, the, the initiator of sin and death entering the world and then how Jesus transforms that and redeems that. Okay, and so here, again, Adam is the, the archetype or the one who sets the pattern for what it means to be an embodied human. And then Christ becomes the archetype for what it looks like to be a resurrected or a transformed body. Jesus represents that far more glorious state that we get to be. And so, so what can we learn about Jesus in his resurrected body that would tell us more about what, what we'll look like? And so let's think about that for a second. So for Jesus, what, was he, what did he do after he was resurrected? If you go to the Gospels, okay, so in Luke 24, Jesus begins to walk with disciples, walking and talking with his disciples on the road to Emmaus. And then later in Luke 24 and in John 1, Jesus sits down in his resurrected body eating fish and eating breakfast with his disciples. Okay, and then in John 20, the disciples come to him and Thomas touches the scars and feels his physical flesh. And then in Acts 1, Jesus is ascending into heaven and an angel comes and says to the disciples, and he says, hey, this Jesus who is taken up into heaven will return in the same way that you saw him leave. Well, how was that? That was as a physical human. And so Jesus is sitting in heaven now as an embodied human. And his presence there is an example and the guarantee that you are going to get a body like that. And that when we see Jesus return, he will return as a physical embodied human. And our resurrection is like we talked about last week, our resurrection is guaranteed and reasonable because of Christ. And then you've got this, this really tremendous cosmological reality being described here. We've got this earthy and natural stuff melding in with heavenly stuff. So he talks about this image of the man of dust and the image of the man of heaven. And these two are colliding here. These different realities are colliding in humanity. So notice there's no, there's no shedding of the original image of this man of dust. Remember, there's a continuity between your current body and the resurrection one. But rather, there's this additional image of the man of heaven that somehow fits into the Constitution that makes it this remarkable thing called humans. This remarkable, embodied thing called humans. And so if you ever wondered if God cares about this physical stuff, well, then here you go. God's not scared of your body. In fact, he's got pretty remarkable plans for the direction of you humans. Okay, so we've, we finished walking through Paul's first two questions, right? How are the dead raised? And then what does that look like for them to be raised? But then he also kind of answers a third question for us. When? When will this happen, Paul? When will we be raised? Let's continue reading verse 50. I'll tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, 
in the twinkling of an eye, at that last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. Okay, so first, before we get to when, he makes us, he reminds us of why you need this. That your frail and weak mortal body is not eternal and therefore cannot inherit eternity. Okay, but what's the timing of this? When is this going to happen? And so I'm going to have to look a little bit back to last week's text because he gives us a bit. Because in this text, he talks about in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And last week, we get a little bit of an image of, of the timing of it here. So let me read to you. This is earlier in 15 in verse 23. It says, But each will be raised in his own order. Christ, the first fruit, and then after that, when Christ comes, those who belong to him. And then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, whom he has brought all things to end all rule and authority and power. Okay, so that trumpet will blast when Christ returns, and that triggers the transformation. So regardless of whether you're alive or dead, when that last trumpet sounds declaring the return of Christ, you will be changed into the imperishable in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye. And this is a little difficult to wrap our minds around, that in an instant you're prepared for eternity, that Jesus is handing over the kingdom to God the Father and all of the enemies are conquered and you are transformed into something new. And so we spent some time talking about the, the physical redemption, but it was worth drawing a little bit of parallels between the spiritual life and the physical life. Okay, the redemption that's coming for both of them. And so let's just try to parallel a couple of them here. So first, both our spirits and our bodies are weak in this life. Right? We struggle with a sin nature. Our heart is deceitful and wicked. And it's evident from this passage and from our everyday lives that also our physical bodies are weak and prone to sin. There's some parallels here between our spirit and our bodies. Second, both we, we ought to long for the redemption, both spiritual redemption and physical redemption. So throughout Paul's writings, you see a longing to be holy and to be with Christ and to have the sin nature removed and to be redeemed, spiritual. But then there's also a physical yearning, and he talks about it in Romans 8, where our bodies are yearning to be redeemed, longing for the redemption to come. So we long for this redemption, both physically and spiritually. And that part of that redemption here, I think this is also parallel, ought to be a pursuit of holiness both in body and and in spirit, in spite of the weaknesses. Okay, so our, our coming redemption is not an excuse to avoid pursuing holiness. And so while we would never reach perfection in this life, right, we know that we're weak. Out of a desire to love and serve Jesus, we want to seek body, holiness in body and soul. And, and in, the, in the Christian world, we talk about spiritual formation or, or spiritual growth a lot. But it's less clear what it means to be an embodied Christian, what embodied Christian formation looks like. So let me just offer a couple of initial ideas here. First off, resist the idolization that the world imposes on the human body. Okay, ima images of the, the ideal body, though constantly changing, are, are, are pressed into our imaginations, really in every space we inhabit. 
the pressure to conform and to obsess so your body matches the standards of the moving target. It's an exhausting treadmill. God cares about your body, and so yes, we exercise value and care, but assess obsessive time, money, energy, kind of skews the narrative here. And rather than having a holistic human formation, you're just left with idolatry of the body. Also, let's think about it this way. Pursuing and prioritizing embodied life. Like showing up in person. Okay? Showing up in person, shaking a hand, giving someone a hug. The, the digital world and, and social media and video platforms, those can only offer so much. That, that human formation, because we are body and soul, human formation is most acute when we engage with each other in person. Okay, there's a reason that River City Church that we gather here in person, and we're never going to have a video service for you just to attend from your couch because we believe that humans, that God is transforming body and soul, and so we need to engage with one another, and we're formed together when we gather in person. And then, and then thirdly, seeking health and vitality. Seeking physical health and vitality, just like you would spiritual health and vitality. And so we often talk about maybe spiritual disciplines in the Christian life. But because Jesus is redeeming your whole person, I think it's just as valid to think about physical disciplines as being deeply Christian things. Not just because it will allow you to thrive in this life, but also out of recognition that God loves and cares about your body. All right, and we're reaching our conclusion here, but we've got to back up a minute before we get to these final few verses. Because this conclusion of this text isn't just, isn't just today's portion that we've been reading, but rather it's the entire of chapter 15. So stick with me here. Because we're not just wrapping up this part here, we're all of 15. So Paul began with a beautiful condensed gospel message. Okay, he said that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, and that he rose again, and that was blue check verified by hundreds of witnesses. Okay, that's the first 12 verses of chapter 15. And then he goes on, as we discussed last week, Jesus is the archetype of our future redemption. And then throughout that section, Paul's been dropping big hints. He's been dropping hints about at, at the point of the resurrection really is. The point is to defeat death. And we walked through that last week. And then this week, we're seeing the final piece of that argument come together by describing how tremendous that future resurrection will be. And so imagine this. Imagine entering a battle against your, your greatest foe, and in this case, it's death, and not only walking away victorious from that battle. Didn't need that one. Not only walking victorious away from the battle, but you emerge stronger than ever before. Imagine walking, entering in perishable, but you emerge imperishable. Imagine entering dishonored, but you emerge in glory. You entered in weakness, but you emerged strong. You entered earthly and natural, but you emerged supernatural. And so Paul is collecting all of these ideas together, and he pulls together these quotes from the Old Testament prophets. And, then, and this last part can only be described as taunting or mocking death. Okay, read with me these final verses here. So in verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord our labor, your labor is not in vain. So that's the power of God who gives the victory. You get to taunt and mock death at the end because you don't stay dead. You are raised. And not only are you raised in your old or corruptible bodies, but you are raised into something transformed that is better and more glorious than ever before. And so I, I thought about for a while about how do I end this sermon or, or what, what kind of appeal do we end with? But there's nothing better that would summarize this section than what Paul just gave us in verse 58. Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. And so, so in this world, you have to face the weakness of body and spirit that plagues humanity, set in sin, stuck in sin. And there's going to be times when the outcome of this war, this struggle with death that seems in jeopardy, when death will appear to have the upper hand and when fog will begin to cloud your vision and your hope might feel kind of fake, your hope might feel foolish, return here to, to chapter 15, return to the section where Paul betray, uh, declares the victory we have over death and the taunting, the mocking of death. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? So brothers and sisters of River City Church, be steadfast, immovable. Keep your feet firm. Keep your hope stable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Please pray with me. Lord, we long for your victory, for your kingdom to rule and reign over all. And while we wait, please give us the grace to hope. Please give us the grace of hope and longing. But only let us ever put our hope in you. So come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We long for your arrival. Amen.